but this is sort of what uh, caught my eye. Um, I feel sort of compelled to begin with the California fires, the Oregon fires, not because um, uh, the number of deaths is so staggering, um, you know, and I suspect that somehow in the same period, um, many more people have died in Afghanistan uh, than in California and um, um, Oregon. But uh, of course, the reason I refer uh, to these fires and, and the deaths in um, the west coast of uh, the United States is that it, it points uh, towards global warming and some sort of pretty catastrophic um, um, eventuality somewhere not that far down the line. Um, it's certainly true that you cannot draw an equal sign uh, between, between a particular bit of weather and then extrapolate uh, from that and say that there's global warming. Uh, there's a difference between weather and climate. Uh, you could describe climate as big weather, uh, you know, weather on a scale uh, beyond a year. Uh, that is certainly a sort of accepted academic uh, definition. And if you take that definition, what you've got is the occurrence of such fires, such lightning strikes, such high temperatures, such up and down uh, weather occurring again and again and again um, within uh, an extremely concentrated period and also reaching extremes uh, often not seen uh, before. So we know in mild old uh, United Kingdom with the Gulf Stream and stuck out there in the middle uh, of water uh, that summers um, are getting hotter on average. Uh, we know that uh, rainfall also then becomes more intense um, and you see this uh, many times over um, in the United States which of course um, you know tends to because it's a con you know size of a continent uh, yeah stuck next to a um, huge ocean uh, tends to have more extreme uh, uh, weather anyway but most people uh, look at what's um, been going on and yeah I think rightly uh, draw the conclusion that something is going wrong with the climate and then you've got to look at what is being proposed uh, in terms of a solution and uh, you have to then conclude I think in all honesty that what is being proposed um, ain't enough so we go from uh, the sort of denialism or the shrug of shoulders uh, of Donald Trump, who wants to put living standards, i.e. translate that into capitalist terminology, profits uh, uh, at the top of his uh, agenda, economic growth, or you go to the more sort of, um, uh, uh, how should you put it, uh, enlightened uh, uh, politicians, and what they propose, quite frankly, is bland uh, beyond uh, belief, you know, so you do get in then to the uh, banning plastic bags and uh, quite frankly gesture uh, politics so plenty of international uh, conferences plenty of hand-wringing uh, but no uh, attempt and it's perfectly understandable why uh, to go to the root cause uh, and from our point of view 
uh, it seems pretty clear that the root cause uh, can be ascribed to capitalism. I don't think you could invent, if you wanted to invent uh, an ecologically destructive uh, system, I don't think you could do it better uh, than capitalism. Uh, because what you have under capitalism is a situation where the system is controlled, uh, not by its controllers, uh, but actually controls its controllers. Um, this is quite a unique uh, thing um, um, in history. In other words, if you take uh, the great capitalists, uh, however much they might, might um, express their concern uh, for the environment, and that can be absolutely genuine. The reality is they're trapped inside a system uh, that forces them um, uh, to make ever greater profits, forces them uh, um, back into production, back into accumulation. Hence the famous phrase in uh, Capital Volume 1 about production for the sake of production and accumulation for the sake of accumulation. Uh, the capitalists, um, once they get to a certain size, are not in the business of satisfying personal needs or personal vanities. The system has its own logic uh, and that forces uh, itself uh, upon uh, capitalist politicians, uh, capitalist in industrialists, capitalist uh, bankers. Now it's true uh, that if you take uh, the Soviet Union, its record when it comes to uh, the environment was absolutely appalling. Um, you know, nuclear waste discarded over the place, um, mad, um, you know, agricultural uh, experiments, proposals to divert the course of uh, rivers using nuclear bombs. One can carry on down the list. But uh, as I say, the, the, the key difference is uh, that uh, under capitalism, uh, those sort of decisions uh, are forced upon um, capital uh, itself, by capital uh, itself. So when we look at uh, uh, capitalist politicians, there's much talk of a Green New Deal. When you scratch the surface of this, you actually find uh, that what we're dealing with, as I said before, really is uh, tinkering. Um, you know, so you can get free urban uh, uh, transport, uh, even taxation um, on polluters, um, uh, and one can carry on uh, down the list. Uh, but the reality is that none of them actually deal with the nature of the system itself. And the only viable alternative uh, to capitalism uh, is socialism, the rule of the working class and superseding uh, capitalism getting rid of production for the sake of production and replacing that with production for need. Um, not some dream of superabundance of where every whim uh, is indulged, quite the opposite. Uh, actually what you're dealing with uh, is a very different um, economic system that would stress actually interpersonal relationships uh, way over uh, you know, material uh, possessions and uh, getting the latest, whatever it happens to be. So I think really on this particular issue, uh, in a way, perhaps like no other, uh, you see the necessity both of a minimum uh, program of what is technically achievable under capitalism uh, and the demands that we put forward uh, under capitalism. And you see the necessity of combining that with a vision 
uh, of the maximum program not just about uh, well isn't this wonderful that this is you know look up look up up at the stars this is this is what we could achieve but you're actually looking at the maximum program as an urgent urgent necessity to meet today's urgent urgent problems uh, in other words uh, any attempt to go into this question in my view just equipped with a minimum program is woefully inadequate let alone those comrades on the left uh, that dress up any minimalist uh, demand and uh, bless it uh, with some sort of transitional magic dust uh, th this actually uh, uh, doesn't do the job uh, because merely putting forward demands uh, that uh, either capitalism can meet or even can't meet and imagining uh, that is going to equip uh, the working class movement with the vision and the understanding that it needs uh, in terms of its historic task of actually saving humanity uh, from a disastrous uh, um, ecological crash uh, um, uh, that's clearly not up uh, for the job. So minimum, maximum program with a particular emphasis actually um, on um, realising uh, the maximum program in the shortest feasible time. Okay, just a, a very quick comment having mentioned uh, the United States okay as an introduction uh, to uh, the global ecological uh, crisis. Uh, just thought I'd comment on Roger Stone, uh, once uh, a, a Trump advisor, advising him um, on some sort of um, some sort of broadcast medium. I'm not quite sure um, uh, where and what, uh, but anyway, Roger Stone advising Donald Trump that if he loses the election, to declare martial law, uh, to arrest the Clintons, to arrest uh, various billionaires. Uh, the likelihood actually uh, is that um, if Trump loses the election, it will be the army if he insists on uh, declaring martial law. The, the first person they would arrest would actually be uh, Donald Trump. There's no love uh, between the U.S. High Command and Donald Trump. Um, and indeed, the U.S. High Command actually looks at um, uh, Donald Trump's divisive domestic agenda and considers it dangerous actually uh, for the discipline and unity uh, of the ranks of the US armed forces, in particular, of course, um, the unity and cohesion um, of the army. Uh, they will still remember, they'll have a collective memory uh, that will be uh, deeply, deeply uh, burnt into uh, their, their brains of what happened in Vietnam. Um, people like Donald Trump, of course, uh, got off serving uh, in Vietnam uh, for um, um, dispensations due to his academic career, one to do with health. Uh, that was very common. Uh, George Bush Jr. Uh, also got off serving uh, in Vietnam. But who disproportionately went to Vietnam uh, were blacks. And uh, given that this coincided uh, with the civil rights movement in the United States, you know, the um, signing in in 1965 of the Civil Rights uh, uh, Act. You know, what the hell am I meant to be doing in Vietnam fighting for democracy when we haven't got democracy uh, in the United States? And we saw the situation 
in terms of pitting the US Army, uh, um, a conscript army, against the forces of the National Liberation Front and the uh, Vietnamese full-time army uh, from the north, uh, that the morale of the US Army uh, melted down and there were, I think, officially recorded something like 900 instances of fragging. Uh, that's uh, someone throwing a, a hand grenade uh, at an officer or shooting an officer uh, um, in the back. Um, in other words, to be an officer uh, in the front line in Vietnam, and they tended to be white college uh, kids, uh, was extremely dangerous. Your life expectancy was very short, not merely because of the enemy in front of you, uh, but also because of the dis disaffected uh, GIs uh, uh, behind you. And the army specifically responded to Vietnam uh, by going over to a volunteer force, but also putting uh, uh, into force lots of measures of uh, positive action, um, actually deliberately picking out uh, black guys, and it tended to be guys, uh, to promote, to educate, uh, uh, and in that sense, to win them over. If you put them onto the streets, in other words, now, which is what Trump was talking about, um, you know, in face of police racist violence, the chances are the army would have split, uh, that you would have got guys refusing uh, uh, to fire at crowds, maybe refusing to be deployed against crowds. Uh, anyone who thinks that's fantasy, just look at the history of the, the United Kingdom. Uh, let alone um, um, other uh, countries. So, as I say, the chances are uh, that the army would not only refuse to be used, uh, it would turn around and simply use military methods uh, to get rid of uh, Trump. So I don't think uh, uh, Roger Stone's advice um, is particularly useful uh, for Trump uh, at the present time. But the very fact there is such talk does say a great deal uh, about uh, um, the US as a declining uh, imperial uh, power. Okay, very quickly um, on a hard Brexit, we have until October the 15th uh, for the government to negotiate with the EU some sort of uh, a trade deal. Um, it's all looking very unlikely, but on the other hand, is this part of the tactics to actually force concessions? I don't know if it if it is a tactic, it's clearly a very high risk tactic because it has all the possibility of going pear-shaped. So if, you're, if your aim is to get a deal um, uh, and you end up with no deal, um, well, you've miscalculated big time. So we have the internal market bill um, being tabled. Uh, this would be in violation of international law. It would also, uh, I think, run counter to the Good Friday Agreement agreed uh, between the two governments, uh, one in Westminster, one in uh, Dublin, um, i.e. that there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, a hard Brexit would necessitate that. You cannot have a no border. You cannot have a soft border uh, under conditions of a no deal uh, Brexit. And therefore, we're getting out the old um, Remainers. We've had Theresa May, who was a Remainer, remember? John Major, Tony Blair. I don't know if you want to add others to the list. I haven't heard what Gordon Brown uh, 
has to say, but I'm sure he would join the chorus. But along with, I think, a rump now of Tory uh, Remainers, I doubt myself, not I'm an expert on the Tory party, but I doubt they'll have enough um, in order to overthrow uh, uh, Boris Johnson's 80-strong uh, majority. Uh, I could be wrong, but I somehow doubt it. Now, all of this stuff um, is very predictable on one level, uh, because if you look at uh, Brexit, Boris Johnson might have won uh, the general election as a result of it, and I think that's pretty unarguable. Uh, but precisely his version of Brexit, Brexit itself, unless it was going to be a Brino, uh, really does put into danger uh, the coherence of uh, the United Kingdom. I mean, here you are, here's a country that's proposing to have part of its own state, i.e. Northern Ireland. This is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Part of that state um, having a customs barrier um, separating it um, from its main market. Uh, well, that's an incredible um, situation. So it's no surprise that the DUP and the official Unionist Party hate uh, this uh, legislation um, and don't want anything to do with it. At the same time, though, you can well understand why people on the island of Ireland, both north and south, look forward to the prospect of a hard border uh, in Ireland itself with trepidation. Uh, because, of course, what has built up since, what, 73, was it, 72, or whatever it was, has been a unified uh, market. And although uh, the South is no longer the Celtic uh, tiger, is no longer a boom economy, um, the fact of the matter is that prosperity, uh, to the extent it exists in the South, is largely dependent on the fact that uh, um, the British Isles, and I'm saying that deliberately, the British Isles, i.e. the state of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, plus ERA, join the EU. And if we take uh, the United Kingdom pulling out uh, of Brexit, the country that will suffer most uh, as a result of a hard Brexit ain't going to be the United Kingdom. It's going to be Southern Ireland. And I don't know what sort of uh, political turmoil uh, will result. Uh, one could easily guess, and that's no more than that, uh, uh, obviously, uh, in a Sinn Féin government. Um, you know, um, what will then happen in the North? Again, all of this is speculation. Nonetheless, that goes hand in hand with consistent uh, polling uh, in Scotland saying that the majority of people want a second referendum and in a second referendum uh, that they would vote for independence. I think the latest poll that's come out uh, this weekend has something like 58%. Now, of course, we don't take them as uh, gospel. Nonetheless, the fact that that's been consistent uh, tells you a great deal. And a lot of that, of true, has got to do with perce a perceived image of handling uh, COVID-19. I think most of that's just nonsense. Um, the reality is that uh, um, all parts of the UK have performed very badly uh, when it comes to COVID-19, simply because the NHS was run down, simply because of the managerial system that was put in place uh, in the uh, NHS, both under Labour governments uh, and subsequent Tory 
uh, uh, governments. Either way, uh, what we have is a real genuine national question um, in Great Britain uh, itself. And uh, that isn't just confined to Scotland. You can look at the latest polls in Wales, 30% say that they want some sort of um, independence. Of course, if you actually look at it in the cold light of day, if there's a hard Brexit, the idea uh, that Scotland breaks away from the United Kingdom and joins uh, the EU, that this is some sort of road to protecting your living standards or even improving your living standards and giving you extra you know, social services and um, better communication links and upgrading your infrastructure. I, I think that's utterly delusional. Um, all we need to do is just look at the map and um, just say, well, where will industry go? Well, it will either go directly to Europe or it will go south uh, to England. Um, it, it will not stay in Scotland. And um, if we want to look at an example, uh, uh, from history. I mean, a good example is what happened to uh, Ireland uh, after independence, not least um, uh, under De Valera uh, in the late 20s when it, I don't know whether it opted for or had autarky forced upon it, but what Ireland exported um, during that period is what it basically exported in the 19th century, and that's people. Um, Ireland in about 1820, this is from memory, had a population of around about 8 million. Uh, Britain had a population at the time of about 20 million. Uh, today, um, Great Britain has a population, roughly speaking, 66 million. Um, Southern Ireland plus Northern Ireland will have a population of what? Five, six million. I, it's gone down even compared uh, with the early part uh, of the 19th uh, century. Okay, so in terms of the Tories, um, the breakup of the UK, it's the first time I must say uh, with Brexit I've taken it seriously. Not that we shouldn't take it seriously politically, um, but I mean as a real prospect, I think this is now really on the uh, agenda. And of course part of it is um, COVID-19 and the perceptions about it. Part of it is the perceptions around Brexit, but also it's the Tory response uh, to Scotland voting for unity, thanks to the Labour Party in the first referendum um, and David Cameron's response to it. Remember, uh, instantly the vote came in. He went out um, into the garden of Downing Street and made an English nationalist uh, speech uh, and spoke about English jobs and English rights and English people's taxpayers' uh, uh, money. And in that sense, the Tory party uh, today is very much an English nationalist uh, uh, party. Scotland is lost territory. And of course, there's a distinct possibility of it also becoming a lost territory, amazingly, uh, for the Labour Party. It's true that Richard Leonard, Leonard survived potential vote of no confidence on him in the Scottish Executive Committee. Been, they've been planning a coup. Why? Because he's closely associated with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, they couldn't get the numbers together. But in terms of if you're going into an election, and the Labour Party in Scotland is early next year, and you wanted to guarantee the um, 
landslide that is predicted for the Scottish National Party, uh, this is the way uh, to go uh, about it. Okay, having mentioned COVID-19, quote unquote, the UK is on the edge of losing control. That's Sir Mark Warport. He's the former uh, chief government advisor, scientific advisor, and is a member of uh, SAGE. And if you look at the figures, uh, you have to nod your head. Uh, the figures have been going up very sharply. Why? In part, it's no doubt uh, so-called COVID uh, fatigue. Uh, but it's also something you have to look at government policy. And again, you look at government policy and it's not utterly irrational. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the government has been doing all it can uh, to get kids back to school. It's been doing everything it can to open up pubs and open up restaurants and uh, open up the entertainment and leisure uh, industry. It's been doing everything it can to get people back into offices and back into factories. And um, all we need to do is look at the statistics. Uh, where is this uh, uh, virus hitting the most? As I understand it, roughly speaking, uh, between people who are 20 years old and 40 years old, it's a huge disproportionate number of infections in terms of them. Might be because of more testing, um, um, uh, but that also explains uh, why the death rate uh, hasn't shut up. These people can catch it just as easily as anyone else, uh, but their chances of suffering uh, death are significantly lower uh, than if you're over 60, let alone if you're over 70 or in your 80s. Okay, so we now have uh, the rule of six. Will it be enforced? Well, not when you've got seven people uh, but if you had 700, one would expect some sort of arrests and fines. It's right for the left to protest at the police using these powers uh, to ban demonstrations it doesn't like. Um, on the other hand, uh, would we want to encourage um, socially distant demonstrations uh, at the present time? I can't say myself that I would view that as responsible uh, uh, behavior. Um, on the other hand, clearly it's a tactical uh, decision. I note, for example, uh, that the SWP is continuing with its policy, just like us, of only having branch meetings online. Meanwhile, of course, it urges people to go to the NHS demonstrations in various parts of the country, where even with the best will in the world, uh, you ain't going to be practicing uh, social uh, distancing. Okay. Let's move on. Um, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalin, N-A-V-A-L-N-Y. Was he done with Novichuk agent, slow acting Novichuk? I would guess so. If that's what the doctors tell me, I've got no reason uh, to um, think otherwise. If that was the case, um, who did it? Well, you know, I think you'd have to really go into some pretty bloody sophisticated um, um, conspiracy theory to suggest that it was anyone else other than um, Vladimir uh, Putin. You cannot imagine the FSB or any other agency of the Russian state taking out the leader of the opposition 
uh, without uh, permission. So it was either the FSB or something like it, or the FSB would be running around Russia, finding out who done it, who the hell's got hold uh, of this uh, deadly nerve agent um, that actually should be banned anyway. Um, you know, uh, and they ain't doing that. And in the same way, uh, when you look at the dismemberment of um, uh, that poor bloody Saudi uh, journalist in, um, um, in Turkey, well, you know, it has to be MSB. It has to be Mohammed bin Salman. Um, it's not going to be some rogue elements as they claimed in, in uh, the courts. It is going to go to the top and the actual top of that state isn't King Abdullah. It's Mohammed uh, bin Salman. Um, he's responsible uh, uh, for it. And unless you can come out with a genuinely convincing explanation of why that's not the case, that's what we ought to stick to. Now, what's my explanation for it? I think basically uh, to put the fear of God um, uh, into anyone that dares diss uh, Vladimir Putin and the existing regime. It's a sort of mafia response. You disrespect us, this is what happens to you. And we are prepared to uh, violate international law. We're prepared to risk sanctions. We're even prepared to risk uh, Merkel uh, not going ahead uh, with this hugely uh, important uh, uh, gas uh, pipeline uh, from Russia um, into uh, Germany over this question. This is how seriously we want to threaten uh, you. Uh, so it's about terror. Uh, this is state terrorism. And of course, it's not only Russia that indulges in state terrorism. Uh, the United States, Israel, and all sorts of other countries have done and do do uh, the same. Okay, very quick comment on the Israel-Baran uh, deal. This follows the Israel-UAE deal. Um, you would have expected Saudi Arabia somewhere along the line. Maybe that will still happen, but uh, King Abdullah has uh, uh, issued a statement of saying no, uh, we're going to stand by the Palestinians. On the other hand, Sisi in uh, Egypt has issued a statement welcoming uh, this uh, latest example of rapprochement between the Arab world and uh, Israel. And this will certainly allow Trump uh, to do some sort of um, I'm a bringer of peace uh, speeches when he debates with uh, uh, Joe uh, Biden. Um, I'm the one uh, that's uh, going to bring peace uh, to the Middle East. I've got the uh, thing moving uh, after, you know, who, know many, who knows how many years. You can take it back to 47, 48, 67. You take uh, your choice. Having spoken about Trump, the peacemaker, we've got Afghanistan. And following uh, US-Taliban uh, negotiations, we now have... Um, Kabul Taliban negotiations in Doha. Um, Taliban have said that this does not involve a ceasefire and I suspect as we talk now uh, bombs are still going off, bullets are still being fired. The government wants a ceasefire, uh, the Taliban uh, doesn't. Uh, last time remember the US uh, Taliban deal was called off because the Taliban killed uh, an American soldier. So it could still easily all go wrong. 
Uh, but clearly Trump wants to wind it down. Um, the plan is to take it down from something like 13,500 troops at present in Afghanistan to something like, what's the figure, 4.5. Well, that amounts to your uh, little garrison that's defending the U.S. Embassy, presumably guarding the green zone um, and is acting as, a, as advisors uh, to the Afghan army. Um, 14, uh, 4,500, uh, a force of 4,500 is tiny. Uh, I suspect somehow the United States will also have uh, bases elsewhere uh, just in case. Uh, so I know that they've got bases in various countries in the stands. I don't know which of the stands, uh, but I know that they have. So if things go really wrong, uh, they've got the option of sending in, you know, the heavy bombers, the fighter aircraft, uh, you name it. But Trump wants uh, peace. He doesn't want this, uh, um, this war. He's also, again, worth noting, this will come up in debate, surely, uh, we're drawing more troops uh, from Iraq. Uh, what a disaster uh, uh, that was, wasn't it? Um, one of the things that um, is being made into a symbolic issue by the Kabul government is women's rights. Uh, there's a special women's delegation there. Some noises coming from the Taliban delegation about respecting women's rights. Just wanted to remind comrades um, about socialist worker on this particular question. Uh, you might not remember, uh, but I do. Um, an SWP comrade writing in Socialist Worker, Helen Salmon. I debated with her once at uh, Oxford um, Reform Society. Was it Reform Club? I can't remember if Mike is here. I don't think he is. He'll tell me what it's called, or maybe uh, Yasmin can. Either way, she wrote an article in Socialist Worker after the Taliban came into uh, Kabul and uh, ordered women to stay at home and if they went out to be accompanied by a male relative and cover themselves head to foot she said well this is anti an anti-rape measure um uh, this remember was at the time of the swp respect project and uh, standing up for uh, the veiling of women and playing uh, to the islamic um uh, politics of um, uh, the Muslim Association of Britain uh, and other such uh, outfits. Uh, utter, utter opportunism. Uh, the SWP, if it was worth anything, should have split over that question. It should have split over respect, which was clearly a popular front party. It ended up splitting over Martin Smith. And I'm not saying that is a nothing, uh, by the way, and I'll come to that um, in a minute. But to have split uh, over Martin Smith when they should have split uh, over forming a popular front party, which presupposes a popular front government, um, is amazing for comrades who presumably have read Trotsky in the 1930s, let alone looking back at the tradition of Comintern and the Socialist International uh, before it. Okay, just a quick reminder about the history of Afghanistan. Um, up to April 78, Afghanistan uh, was highly um, um, aided uh, by the Soviet Union and both members of the elite and uh, urban um, 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 workers uh, would have um, and did 
actually look at the Soviet Union as some sort of model to aspire to. And they would have had contacts over the border with fellow speakers uh, of their own language. Uh, remember, Afghanistan is a multilingual um, sort of, I don't know, it's not a natural uh, <laughs> country. It's certainly not a nation. Uh, but they would have talked to relatives. They would have talked to people over the border uh, who would have been far better educated, uh, who would have been enlightened and would have had far better prospects than they had in Afghanistan itself. And of course, Afghanistan became something of a, um, a bone of contention in the Cold War uh, that ended um, in um, April 1978 when the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan staged an uprising against uh, Daoud, President Daoud, who is related to the royal family. Um, and they put uh, uh, Afghanistan firmly uh, within the Soviet uh, orbit and would have declared it a, a, a people's republic. And of course, the PDPA was an official communist party. But we know it was also a split party uh, between the Parcham wing and the Kalk uh, wing and uh, the Kalk wing over no it it, it itself uh, went into a division in september 1979 can't remember his first name but when amin overthrew taraki the soviet union intervened a few months later and the west protested and of course already uh, the united states and um, its allies were pumping in arms the Soviet Union thought that by its intervention and executing a men accusing him of being a CIA agent, uh, that they could uh, placate the counter-revolution. Of course, it did no such thing. And of course, these were the conditions that saw the birth of uh, the Northern League, the Mujahideen, but also in the refugee camps in Pakistan of the Taliban. And uh, the Taliban were a product of the Pakistani Secret Service. And um, these people went into uh, Kabul and overthrew uh, the Mujahideen uh, uh, government. So in that sense, you know, the, 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 the handprints of US imperialism uh, are all over Afghanistan going way back uh, to uh, the 1970s in terms of arming people with highly sophisticated uh, weaponry, uh, most of the time of which uh, they spent blasting uh, each uh, other. Okay, uh, just moving on now, sort of rounding things off. So we're now 40 minutes in, so I don't wanna take up too much more time, but I just thought some comments on the left were appropriate. There's an article doing the rounds by Andrew Fisher one of um, Ke uh, Kinnock's, uh, one of Corbyn's uh, former advisors, but also there's an article in The Guardian uh, by Owen Jones. Uh, my own description of these people has to be former left-wingers. They still think of themselves, of course, as being left-wing. They'll think of themselves as being socialists. But what they mean by being left-wing is being in alliance with the centre which actually means in day-to-day -day language, actually being in uh, alliance with the right, which actually means doing the bidding, serving capitalism. Uh, these people are out liars uh, of capitalist 
uh, politics. Uh, uh, they don't represent uh, a genuine trend in working uh, class uh, politics. These uh, are the people of the sort uh, that Lenin referred to uh, when he wrote about the Labour Party, um, you know, at the time of the Second Congress of Comintern as reactionaries of the worst type. And he had in mind people like Thomas, Henderson, uh, but also MacDonald. Um, so social pacifists, but also social imperialists. And that's what these people um, are. Um, anyway, the, the basic mantra is we've got to work constructively with Keir Starmer, who apparently is in reality in his heart uh, a socialist. And we have the statement that basically, and there's a truth there, at the moment, Starmer's programme is basically the programme of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, the significance of Jeremy Corbyn wasn't so much his uh, programme that was outlined in two general election manifestos, one in 2017 and one in 2019. It was his history, his back story, um, his solidarity uh, with the Palestinian cause. Um, his solidarity with um, Cuba, uh, with um, anti-imperialists in Latin America, uh, his solidarity, uh, you know, with um, uh, those fighting uh, apartheid, um, his opposition uh, to the imperialist war uh, conducted by Blair and Bush uh, against Afghanistan and then I Iraq. It was that backstory uh, that made him unreliable as far as the generals were concerned and the civil servants and his own uh, parliamentary Labour Party and Mike Pompeo and the CIA uh, and MI5 and one can just carry on down the list. That's what made him unreliable. Now, in government, if he'd ever got there, and I, I think that's highly unlikely, um, I, I think he would have gone in there um, and attempted to appease the right, do the right thing. Uh, but the, the danger would have been, and this is what we kept warning the left of, that in the highly unlikely scenario uh, that Corbyn ends up in number 10, uh, the forces of the deep state, uh, the American treasury, the American president, uh, the generals, people will rattle uh, Britain to bring you down. And uh, I've, I've you know, been on countless demonstrations and you raise that question with comrades on the left and they say, well, in that case, um, we would stage a revolution and you turn around and say, well, with what regiments of the British army will you stage your revolution with? With what armed units, with what mass organizations will you stage your revolution with? This wouldn't even be equivalent to the overthrow of Allende in 1973 by uh, Pinochet and the generals in uh, Chile. And what sort of a fight did they put up? I know that as an individual, uh, Allende showed great courage, you know, as the uh, presidential palace was being bombed by British built uh, fighter bombers. Uh, there are pictures of him with a, um, a submachine gun. Uh, but the reality is that the working class were not equipped uh, to deal with that. Uh, there'd been no split in the army. Um, um, there'd been no systematic arming uh, of the masses. And in reality, uh, the CIA staged a coup and then massacred uh, thousands uh, of leftists and disappeared others and, and sent thousands and thousands of comrades into either permanent uh, or long-term um, uh, exile. 
Um, I doubt, as I say, that would have happened uh, with Corbyn because the prospect of him actually becoming Prime Minister relied on votes of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And I always thought they'd much rather vote uh, for Keir Starmer than they would uh, Jeremy Corbyn and therefore the Queen would be advised as such if the Labour Party had a majority. Anyway, that aside, uh, what these guys are now saying is work uh, with Starmer work therefore with the right, with the pro-capitalist, openly pro-capitalist uh, right, and everything will come, uh, um, become hunky-dory with a Labour government. Well, okay, a Labour government committed to running capitalism, uh, that's a feasible uh, prospect. What that means to the left uh, doesn't mean anything uh, to the left. Now, I just want to make a final point. Uh, what's the nature of the Labour left? The nature of the Labour left, because it's actually an organic part of British society, it will renew itself. And if we want to look at where the, the Labour left will um, renew itself from, we need to be looking, in terms of today, at movements like climate extinction and Black Lives Matter. Not this year, not next year, but in five years' time, six years' time, seven years time, maybe even in a decade's time, these people will find themselves uh, gravitating towards what they would view as realistic politics. If we look at the latest climate extinction uh, uh, action, it included, yes, the blockading um, of uh, the Sun, uh, the Times, the Daily Mail, great, uh, I like that. Uh, that's got nothing to do with stopping freedom of speech. <laughs> it's just a good demonstration of uh, popular anger. But that went hand in hand uh, with an attempt to table a climate emergency bill that presumably, if it's going to be have any sort of realistic prospect, isn't going to rely on one Green MP, but must rely on winning allies in the Labour Party. And we ain't just talking about Diane Abbott. And so you have the path of capitalist realism also there, but via the Labour left, uh, which is a catchment house uh, for good intentions. Final note on that, if one wants to use the word class, um, you know, in a sort of 19th century way, then it's true that the Labour Party and the Labour left is middle class, but not in a Marxist uh, uh, sense. Uh, in a Marxist sense, if we're talking about relationship to the means of production, if we're talking about those that are living off the wages uh, fund, if we're talking about the modern working class, well, we know that half of young people now go to university. We're not dealing uh, anymore with the university population of 1926 uh, that uh, had a jolly good wheeze uh, by scabbing um, on the general strike. Uh, the chances are if we take uh, um, college kids nowadays, if there was something like uh, the general strike, they would be in solidarity with the general strike and they would not be in solidarity with an alien class, which is something we want to encourage from the bourgeoisie. They will be in solidarity with what they will become. In other words, white collar workers, computer programmers, uh, and you name it. This is the modern working class. And if you want to um, um, look at that prospect. Marx is already discussing that in Capital in terms of the changing nature um, of uh, the working class. And we shouldn't forget uh, that. Otherwise, basically, you ascribe to a thesis 
of um, you know death death of the working class, the disappearance um, of the working class, and the number of manual jobs uh, is clearly shrinking. Um, the number of non-manual jobs is clearly increasing, and we need to include uh, non-manual workers, including non-productive workers, as part of uh, the working class. Okay, good news, good news, good news, comrades. Tusk is back at work. Tusk, what do I mean? Trade unionist and socialist coalition. It's a shadow of its former self, you have to say, um, but the go-ahead has been given and it's been given by the RMT. In other words, the uh, Transport Workers Union um, has given the go-ahead and they've obviously been having a debate on their executive and with the election of Keir Starmer replacing um, um, Corbyn and the defeat, humiliating defeat of Rebecca Long Bailey, the majority of the RMT um, executive said, okay, well, maybe we might have been tempted to rejoin the Labour Party to support uh, uh, Corbyn, uh, but not now. Well, they ain't going to have, I think, um, the uh, uh, FBU uh, back on board. Uh, I don't think either, for what it's worth, they're going to have the SWP uh, back on board. There seems to be too much uh, uh, bad blood uh, between SPU and the SWP uh, at the moment. So, uh, okay, there will be standing candidates. My expectation, they will be getting shit results. But even if they didn't get shit results and we could reform the Labour Party, um, what, what do we expect it to produce? I mean, this is the project. The project of the Comrades, it's a strategic project, is the Labour Party is now like the US Democrats. I disagree. It's got uh, Unite, it's got Unison, it's got the GMB, it's got the FBU, and one can carry on affiliated uh, to it. But even if you reinvented the Labour Party, the fact of the matter is that the SPU comrades were waiting for the RMT to give the go-ahead. And the message is clear. The trade union bureaucracy have the power of veto uh, over this project. That's something they don't have the power of veto over the Labour Party. Trade union bureaucracies reproduce themselves spontaneously in capitalist society. Trade union leaders, when it comes down to engaging in bourgeois politics, and that is the trade in wage labor. They are merchants in wage labor. Now, some of them can be good revolutionaries, but ultimately what we rely on uh, in terms of transforming trade unions into schools of communism is a communist party and communist discipline, not the individual psychology and morality of individual trade union militants who end up as general secretaries, assistant general secretaries, or members of trade union executive committees. Uh, it's communist discipline, it's collective discipline, and it's commitment to a realistic communist program, but crucially, the discipline of a communist collective that makes all the difference. And we say the same thing vis-a-vis -vis the Labour Party. The Labour left will never, ever, ever, ever be able to transform the Labour Party into a vehicle with, uh, for socialism uh, unless you've got a disciplined communist party and we're talking about a mass communist party uh, in control uh, over that uh, process. In other words, a communist party that is by far the dominant force um, um, in the left of the Labour Party, which is clearly a, a massive force in the trade union movement, then that becomes possible. Then it becomes possible to control uh, MPs, 
then it becomes possible to control trade union uh, officials. If you don't do that, uh, then it's hopeless. And the, that's the lesson we draw from the Social Democratic Party of Germany, but also other social democratic parties uh, up to and during World War I. And it's why we would put in place, you know, a party max, uh, why we would put in place strict discipline uh, over our parliamentarians as the Bolsheviks had strict discipline over their parliamentary uh, representatives. And the CPGB, you should look at the stuff, had very strict discipline over their parliamentarians. Uh, and I include Phil Paratin and uh, Willie Gallagher in the 1940s and 50s. The executive committee would actually look at every speech they made in parliament and bring them up and criticize those speeches and say, no, these are the points you must be making. Um, that would be our uh, approach. Okay, having mentioned the ba bad blood uh, between the SWP and SPEW, um, I think you can illustrate that um, by looking at the forthcoming Unison election. There are five candidates to replace Dave Prentice. Uh, two of them I don't know much about, and that's Christina Mukuzia uh, Anzia, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, another comrade called Peter Sharma. Uh, Christina is an insider, I think she's an unelected assistant general secretary. Um, Peter Sharma, I don't know what his politics are, but the other three are interesting. Uh, one is uh, Hugo Pierre, he's on the executive committee from the uh, black section of uh, Unison. He's a member of SPEW. Uh, his platform is very good when it comes to um, not getting the general secretary's bloated wage of, what was it, 130,000 pounds. He says, I'm gonna live on the council workers wage that I now um, uh, get. Um, but the thing that marks him out to me is precisely, uh, we will stand candidates against Labour Party. And I've got no problem with that in principle at all. Um, indeed, I can envisage that being the case. Um, you know, if a, a local constituency fell out with Keir Starmer and it had ge a genuine mass base, go ahead. Uh, but of course, the project that uh, he's got in mind and Spew has got in mind, I've already dealt with. And I just think that's a waste of time. Uh, much better uh, to use uh, Unison's weight uh, in the Labour Party against, for example, uh, the witch hunt of leftists uh, in the Labour Party, which has all uh, uh, the possibilities of actually being generalised by this government out into wider society. Hence, for example, uh, the sacking of uh, Stan Keeble by, by a Labour uh, government, but turning uh, this sort of uh, anti-Semitism offence into, into not only offence in terms of Labour Party rules, um, uh, but also in terms of government legislation uh, that bans anti-Semitic organisations and um, uh, all the rest of it. And uh, if we look at what's gone in, on in the Labour Party, uh, that certainly means us, but it means many, many others besides. Okay, who else is standing? Um, the most significant one is Paul Holmes. Um, he's backed by the SWP and comrades in the Labour Party, but at the moment he's under a bit of a dark shadow because he's accused of bullying, uh, which the spew comrades say, well, we know how these offences be, are being used by the bureaucracy, um, but uh, you have to take that seriously, don't you? 
And the one that I suspect will uh, get elected is another unelected Assistant General Secretary, uh, Roger McKenzie. He's backed by Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, but also I note uh, that he spoke at the um, LRC AGM uh, the other week. Um, so he's again, he strikes me as someone who's acceptable uh, to the trade union bureaucracy, where my guess is uh, that Paul Holmes is uh, more of an outsider. But the main point I'm saying about this is one, how the Labour left is clearly backing um, just a trade union apparatchik, um, and how the SWP and SPEW are visibly split. And obviously we know all about um, PCS and uh, PCS public and PSC. Um, and all the rest of it. Okay. Uh, also worth noting that the, the article in The Socialist had to carry a disclaimer saying that uh, uh, Hugo Pierre knew nothing about this article uh, because it's against uh, unison rules uh, to have any external support. Um, so he, he didn't know anything about this article. God help us. Okay, lastly, uh, interesting article in Socialist Worker on the GMB. Comrades might know about the troubles and tra tra travails of uh, the GMB. Uh, the former General Secretary has gone. Um, he said because of bad health. Others have said, well, there were charges of sexual harassment. And we've had an investigation by Karen Monaghan QC. She's been brought in and she's issued 27 recommendations. And she's declared that uh, the GMB is quote unquote, institutionally sexist, and I'm sure it is. Um, what you've got is a series of uh, regional organizers who basically run their own fiefdoms, but all under uh, a powerful uh, general secretary. Uh, you've got the exclusion of rank and file uh, candidates. It's a sort of, I should put it, old boys club. Uh, of a bureaucracy. Uh, interestingly, for what it's worth, uh, the GMB still has in its rules uh, the aim of socialism. Uh, this was written by uh, Marx's uh, daughter. Um, but anyway, that's a historic aside. Uh, but amongst her 27 recommendations includes uh, improving women's representation, uh, but also a complaints, an external complaints um, um, procedure. So you have another bureaucracy uh, looking at complaints. Well, we see the sort of complaints procedure we already have in the Labour Party, um, let alone the sort of complaints procedure uh, that the British Board of Deputies uh, wants. Anyway, uh, our comrades in the SWP in an unsigned article, at least I couldn't find a signature, signature to it, declare, well, the thing about the GMB is what we have is a lack of rank and file involvement in decision making. Uh, you have to agree, but I don't think there's much in the way of rank and file decision making in the GMB. But also, hey, what about the SWP? How much actual rank and file control uh, do they exercise when it comes to decision making there? Uh, I would actually argue none. Um, you know, their regional organisers are appointed top down. Uh, they each run their own fiefdoms. They run it in their own way. They call um, the, you know, the National Secretary boss because that's what they are. Um, the whole thing is run by a you know, self-reproducing um, central committee. Um, 
their national councils are talking shops. Uh, their conferences are for show. Um, when you do have an opposition, we know that the centre organises a faction against them. Uh, you don't have freedom of speech. You don't have the freedom to horizontally uh, discuss uh, political questions in the SWP. So I thought that the conclusion that the comrades came to about the GMB um, either was using a, a Sopian language, but more likely just showing that these comrades live in a bubble and are just unaware uh, that nowadays all people have to do is type SWP into their Google search engine and either at the top or very, very near the top, you get the words SWP and then next to it, you'll have the word rape. Uh, that's what actually turns up, but you would never find that in Socialist Worker. Never find that dealt with in Socialist Worker. Uh, in their internal bulletin, that was dealt with when you had factions and, and the faction uh, fight, but they never wanted to recognise that publicly, um, as if everyone else uh, didn't know about it. About it. Okay, they, anyway, they, they conclude, fundamental change requires a break from the way that the union is run not a changing of the guard. And I have to say, well, with the replacement of Martin Smith, that, that exactly reply, applies that you've got. Martin Smith is gone. Long live Martin Smith-ism. Uh, that is what the SWP is today. With all the abuses and all the potential abuses of power uh, that that uh, involves. And of course, Martin Smith wasn't the last leading SWP -er uh, to be accused, either justly or unjustly. I'm not in a position to judge, uh, but uh, uh, the SWP Central Committee, of course, set itself up as judge and jury um, on this particular Martin Smith case. Anyway, that's it. Thank you, Stan.